Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, we've got Marina Gorbis, Executive Director of the Institute for the Future. I think the human life is ambiguous. This kind of data-driven bureaucratization is really taking a lot of humanity out of our interactions. Marina's here to help us see how a utilitarian value set has become embedded in our society and its technologies, and to teach us how to make these apparent not just to ourselves, but to the institutions blindly following the scripts they've inherited. Gorbis is not predicting the future, so much as working to create one where people are worth more than the data they leave behind. So today's show is a little different. Instead of recording from the basement media squad at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism, we went to the Personal Democracy Forum, a huge conference for people who want to enable democratic processes. There was Alicia Garza, the founder of Black Lives Matter, Dana Boyd of Data and Society, Sherry Turkle, Craig Newmark, and my old friend Marina Gorbis, who I was hoping to catch up with to congratulate her on the release of the Panama Papers, a global banking scandal, by a nonprofit investigative journalism network she helped start. Then we figured I may as well interview her for the show and use my 20-minute closing keynote as the monologue. So here's me and Team Human enthusiast Marina Gorbis this past June at the Personal Democracy Forum, followed by me doing the closing talk. So 
first and most interestingly, we're working together now. I'm a, a research fellow at Institute for the Future, and uh, I feel like I'm part of a new line of inquiry. Almost, it's, it's almost like I'm. This is like my first meeting with my supervisor. <laughs> oh my, my gosh! New job. But gosh. I'm interested to know what are you seeing as the as the aspect of of IFTF's work that I'm plugging into. Well, there are several things that are you're plugging into. One is, I've increasingly. I just read this article in HBR about the best co-working places are like 15th century artisanal. Artisan workshops. And HBR is Harvard Business <laughs> Review, for those of you who might not know. Exactly. And I thought about it, my gosh, that's exactly what we want to be. We're kind of this intellectual hub where a lot of amazing people come together, you being one of them. And they think about big ideas and they think and imagine what's possible, what's not possible, where should we be going from many, many different perspectives. So we have people who are thinking about future work and what's happening with work and jobs. We have people who are thinking about future of health and quantified self and many other devices. We, we have people who are thinking about future of food. You know, we just opened this amazing retail store called Future Now where we can, you can experience what the future might feel like if you lived in that future. So it's just amazing space intellectual space for imagining, thinking new things. And I don't know if there's any other place like that right now. So that's what you're plugging into. In terms of particular areas that we're, I'm personally really interested in, I'm very much thinking about future work and what's happening with the platform economy, what it all means. I'm increasingly interested, I've been involved with investigative journalism and people who've been behind some of the Panama Papers revelations, which are very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in connecting ideas coming out from investigative journalism and governance and some of the data stuff and some of the labor issues, because I think there are a lot of learnings that can be gotten from those conversations. Um, I'm also increasingly, as I'm thinking about future uh, work and imagining different possibilities, I'm interested in thinking about so much of our vocabulary kind of shapes how we think. And a lot of our organizational vocabulary comes from business right now for the last mm -hmm. 100 years or more. So it's all about efficiency, productivity, time utilization, and all of those things. Um, and a lot of those things will be automated. Everything that you can measure and produce efficiency, that's great. I mean, even those terms, they're great for machines, right? Like you can measure. You can see what productivity of machines are. And so they're not optimized for humans. So I'm interested in thinking what kind of human language we can develop to think about value creation. Maybe some of it comes from the arts. You know, art, artists, just because you produce 100 things doesn't mean they're good. So you can't measure art on the basis of your productivity numbers. You know, maybe you produce one piece, but it's world-changing and amazing. So I'm interested in kind of exploring what can we learn from these other areas that are much more creative around how we think about value, how we think about humans. I mean, that's, you know, the name of the podcast is Team Human. You know, we're really looking at, you know, well, obviously you're a member of, you're, you're on Team Human, but when we, uh, uh, at least the latest way I've been thinking about it is that we tend to measure humans in terms of utility value. You know, and as long as we do, machines will certainly be better at everything. So then how do we, without getting too, 
and maybe we have to, but without getting like too spiritual and soft and squishy and crazy new age West Coasty, um, how do we talk about the kind of the the ineffable nooks and crannies that make people uh, more than mere machines? Yeah, and I I think that's a language issue in many ways, and it's also what I've been doing is I've been observing people who are may look crazy, which is one of our methodologies. You look at people who don't fit into the norm and they don't fit into the mainstream. So people doing things in very different ways. So somebody, um, one of our fellows, actually Tim West, who is, uh, he's created food hackathons and others. And um, one of our staff was doing observations of Tim, like how does he organize his day? And he doesn't have a schedule you know he doesn't have a plan but he knows where to be during the day so he gets on his bicycle and he knows geographic places where he needs to be and every place he goes he catalyzes some amazing something happens there you know another one of our fellows just took off for Greece and is helping create a refugee camp kind of an alternative thing and I've been thinking about it that you know the way it goes back, way back in history, which is another thing. When you think about the future, sometimes you have to go way, way back into history because you have to kind of abstract yourself from what you think is just can't be changed. It's like God-given thing. that, And you think about time. Invention of clocks, I think, was a huge, huge development in human history because that's when people didn't always live by you have to be here by nine o'clock because you don't know when nine o'clock is exactly and it changes by season so we didn't organize our lives in this Mm -hmm. very planned way so you know some of the work was seasonal you know you worked during the summer or whatever the fall and then you didn't work for a while or you know you're approximated a lot of things and so what are the other ways for us as humans to organize our lives so you can organize it by geography like you know where some interesting things are happening so you organize your life because you're gonna that's what tim is doing or you organize it around need like i needed to be in Greece right now because something is happening or artists who organize their work around flows for better or worse it's like you know I'm so in this mode right now whether it's writing or painting and all of that so I think that we have to go way back in history to come up with these new concepts for how do we organize our lives that matter right I mean it sounds like there's really there's two uh, two ways of working this I mean and I guess you know, you and I are involved in both of them. The one is to be able to deconstruct the technology and its origins. So for the clock, you'd go back and you'd read Mumford, you know, exactly. civilization. And you'd see, or him and then Brodell on the end of the medieval time. And you'd see, oh, when we got charter monopolies and people couldn't work in their own businesses, then they, instead of selling the value they created, now they were going to sell their time to companies. So once you had wage earners or hourly wages, we put clocks up on the clock tower and it created an illusion of fairness, but now we have a metric, time became money, and we're here. So there's that deconstruction, but then there's this other almost scarier place where then you have to go back and say, okay, so before that, you know, before we were measuring things with this machine, what was time? 
you know, and then you can say, well, now we get into Aboriginal cultures and, you know, organizing themselves around the lunar calendar. <laughs> and we can use science to say, oh, well, look, in the average 28-day lunar calendar, there's a week when acetylcholine tends to dominate right. in the blood system, then serotonin, then dopamine. And, and so each week of the lunar cycle tends to be well-suited for a different sort of human behavior. Yeah. That's scary. I mean, it's certainly scary to capitalism, but it's scary to people who think it's almost as if modernity is about about human control and the generic quality of nature. And we're slowly learning that, oh, nature just doesn't conform to all, all these little right. boxes and civilization neither. Exactly. And I think like this is a, my problem with this whole movement of everybody has to learn to code, which is not a bad thing, and yeah. you wrote a book about it. But what I'm worried about, what are you not learning? Like, I think everybody should be learning history, and history, you know, from way back. Because we're at the point where so many of our basic concepts are up for grabs. And we kind of were searching, okay, well, we, if we don't work, or if we get automated out, how are we going to survive? Well, what did we do a thousand years ago? How did, and by the way, we don't want to live like we lived a thousand years ago when we never repeat history, you know, we're going to mm -hmm. move into something else. But oftentimes, this is uh, McLuhan's four rules or of for, for looking at media, we always kind of bring something else back we from retrieve. the past and yeah. we retrieve something and we reinvent it in a new way. And this whole idea that all of our social connections and our identity and everything else is tied to work is a relatively new idea. Our identity was tied to our family, our clan, our location, our city, our village, all of those things. And so we will bring this back in some, in some way. Yeah, it goes back to your language question. You know, the the question, you know, where do you live? Now to people means the house that they own or the apartment they rent. Whereas in a long time ago, it was, you know, oh, I live in you know New York or right. Paris. I, this is where I or am. This or this village that yeah. in China, like you're forever part of that village, even if you move to the city. So. Yeah. Or this understanding of ourselves, you know, by our by our careers. What do you do? Right. You know, what do right. you do? What do you? Right. Mean? What right. do I do? I wake up in the morning. What do I do? Yeah. Like I think as we are automating a lot of things and we're deconstructing everything that can be decoded will be automated. That's kind of predictable routine and other things. We increasingly like. I think the human life is ambiguous, and as humans. We're ambiguous, like that's our role, is not to be defined, not to be measured, not to be put so that we can be deconstructed. And so I think like where the human spaces will be, will be the spaces for ambiguity. You know, me talking to you and there are clues that I'm reading and cues and kind of other things. And I don't think anybody can measure that. You know, you can measure certain kinds of things, your location and other things. So increasingly our role as humans and with this very automated technological uh, sort of age is to create and seek out the spaces for ambiguity. But ambiguity and anomalous behavior are amount to resistance exactly. in a data-driven reality, no? Exactly. It is resistance. I mean, and, you know, half the people uh, we run into think the data is the cure. You know, yes. That we just, oh, don't worry, we'll figure that one out, you know? Yeah. 
Well, and, you know, David Graeber talks about sort of bureaucratization, radical bureaucratization, that when you have a lot of data and you have, you have to bureaucratize a lot of things. And some bureaucracy is not bad, but we over-bureaucratize to the point where, you know, you can't, like, your web experiences, you have to fill in this and you have to answer this way. And it takes away, in order to bureaucratize, you need to get rid of ambiguity because you're creating something standardized that every that it works for everybody so so many of our interactions you know whether you go to the store you know these little uh, tags on your apple like what a pain in the neck that is you know to have to scrape that thing off every apple like i purposefully not buy this stuff and i go to farmers market so i don't have to do that like that is a pain in the neck and I, I thought about it, like, if you observe, like, the interactions with a clerk as you check out, first of all, there is no, you know, my favorite story um, from Russia is that everybody complained about long lines in Russia, you know, it was a horrible experience, but lines were social spaces, people talked, mm. they chatted, you know, they got together, and it's, it wasn't like this horrible, yes, you probably don't want to, it's unproductive, right, <laughs> right, to stand in line, because it's a social experience. The experience of going to the store in the U.S., you're in and out, you know, it's automated, scanned, you're out. There is no social interaction in your shopping experience, hardly. That's why people go to the farmer's market and you, like, you run into your neighbors and you talk to people who are selling and you ask them about how they grew this stuff and what's the best thing to do and recipes and all of that. So like this kind of data-driven bureaucratization is really taking a lot of humanity out of our interactions. And as this happens, you know, unless we change our ourselves at the DNA level, we're not seeking social interactions and we, we're not seeking to be with each other and all of those things, you know, which is possible. And if, maybe if you listen to Ray Kurzweil, he will tell you that that's, we're going to combine with machines and, you know, it's going to, some something really fundamental has to change at the human level because we're increasingly going to be seeking those encounters and social and spaces. They may come from different places. They may not be our workplaces, but the, we will be seeking them. And things don't change that fundamentally on a human level. Species go extinct, but uh, the sort of evolution that Ray Kurzweil or others will be talking about, a desocialized human that's optimized for efficiency is no longer human. And that would take millions of years of evolution and natural selection you know, it means we'd have to let certain ones die off if they're too human. Right. And we're already kind of evolving. Like, you know, when you have to call for customer service, you sound like a robot because you are being trained to, to talk like a machine. So a lot of our interna interactions, we are kind of being trained to behave or it's Siri or other things. You know, we're, the machines are actually training us as much as we're training them. Right. And then they're behaving with at least phantom autonomy. And yeah. we're increasingly servile. <laughs> right. And that's, I mean, that's really partly the difference between Institute for the Future and so many of these future-y places. I mean, my whole problem with Institute for the Future was just the word future, which to <laughs> me came to, asso I came to associate with the Ray Kurzweilian people or people who are predicting the future rather than creating the future. You know, right. which is why... Or imagining different possibilities. Like, I right. like this... Whole, um, and I think you wrote about it in your introduction piece as a fellow, mm -hmm. that there is a difference between reality seekers and um, possibilians. Mm. It's like 
so much of our future is like, let's predict what it's going to be. And it's a given thing. And we just have to figure it out and give us a crystal ball instead of saying the future is all about imagination. The future is where you can imagine different possibilities and you have agency to shape it. And that's what it's all about. I know it's funny. I, after the the Google bus book, I've got lots of investor type people asking me. So, what stock <laughs> should I bet on? You know, what what's going to happen? What investment's going to go up? And the question I come back to them with is, well, what investment do you want to go up? Yeah. You know, which it doesn't even occur to them. I always you tell know? people we get I get asked that all the all the time, future, like, right? and I said <laughs> the future at least the futures that we do, we're the worst people to ask what to invest in because we're focusing on outliers, on early signals. A lot of them will die and disappear. It's not about point. It's what possibilities they're showing us as to which one of them will survive, which one will die. We have no idea. And we don't care about that. I guess in, in, in closing, one of the main projects of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism and really the 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 partner project to Team Human Radio is a set of resources of things people can do, places people can go, professionals they can hire if necessary, in order to realize the sort of the the more human-centered reality that we're talking about. So you know, some of them are very practical, like how do we do a local currency? How do I change my company to a B Corp? How do we become a platform cooperative? How do we organize our CSAs into a farmer's market? You know, very practical things, but also um, ideological, behavioral things. Where people listening to this who resonate with the idea of, oh, gosh, I want things to be less mechanical. I want to, you know, work more like an artisanal craftsperson. I want to uh, tap my creative, individual, quirky, human side, even though I have to work at this cubicle job nine to five. What are what are ways to, to begin to shift? Where are you seeing the... Uh, uh, to use an investor's word, the green shoots of the more um, humanistic uh, world? Um, first of all, I love the name digital humanism. I think actually we should just create an army of digital humanists and lead the revolution because I, that's what I hope the future is going to be. It's, it's like we have to preserve our humanity and use the technology to, you know, dug Engelbart, in his early years, he talked about human augmentation. He talked about technology augmenting and helping humans, uh, not about technology supplanting us or making us into robots. So I love that. Uh, where I would go, I love places like makerspaces and like tech shop where people are coming together, it's a membership, and you can do DIY manufacturing and production and all of that, and people are helping each other. You know, some of the co-working spaces, I hope that you do create a compendium of all these places and people to turn to, but, you know, there are places like your lab, there's Institute for the Future. There are, um, I think it would be great, great to create kind of a compendium of all the resources. So people can really, really just make a call or walk into a place, find the others, as yeah. Timothy Leary would uh, would advise the, the psychedelic people of the time. That's really it. If you find the others, you can create some basic solidarity. Exactly. You know, it feels like the technologies are so biased against, oddly enough, these peer-to-peer -peer technologies are biased against people actually forging human connections exactly. with others. We should do a big event or kind of a festival on digital humanism. I'll do it. 
I'm Let's there. Let's do it. All right. Okay. Cool. Well, coming to you live as humans from the Personal Democracy Forum in, uh, in New York City on the summer of whatever year this is, 2016, the year of our Lord. <laughs> I'm Douglas Rushkoff. And thank you, Marina Gorbis. Thank you. I love you. Pleasure. I love you. <laughs> With Marina's ideas still ringing in my head and two days of personal democracy forum only half digested, I got up to do the closing keynote of the conference. I was trying to convey the pretty difficult but important idea that Marina and I were tackling, that digital tools may not be the best platforms from which to push for democratic reform. Digital tools, for the most part, are built by startups and other companies whose business models involve externalizing real costs. That's why San Francisco suffers, even though the Bay Area startups create billionaires. And the apps those companies build also externalize things. All those things we don't want to see or won't click on. They don't show up in our algorithmically curated news feeds. Is that a good foundation for democratic thought or action? I don't think so. So take a listen to me making the team human argument to some of the most well-intentioned technologists in the world. This was June 10th, 2016, at the Personal Democracy Forum in New York. All right, so I was taking notes. That's why I got this thing. First, let me just say, we all mean well. We have the best intention. We all mean well. So while I may sound critical, I'm not critical of our intentions. Everybody here means well. From the first day, particularly the first half of the first day, I was getting the feeling like we believed that if only the sort of laughably incompetent, old-school bureaucratic messiness of government were smoothly transitioned to our beautiful, pristine digital platforms, then all of the problems would go away. And the, the problem with that, as, as Dana Boyd began to point out, was that when you port things onto these platforms, the biases of those platforms end up directing the activity. You know, so we end up with the scrum, minimum viable, resilient values of Silicon Valley as the, as the bedrock for uh, citizen-driven social justice and democracy. And that just doesn't work. You know, and the reason why it doesn't work is because Silicon Valley venture capitalism, the digital startup world, and the tools they build are based on the principle of externalizing the social costs of development. You know, all you need to do is play with your iPhone and think about the pristine little box that the iPhone is in, and you think about that the energy it needs is what I plug into the wall. You don't think about the two refrigerators worth of electricity that the cell phone is actually using when it's pulling on all those servers out there. The externalized costs of, of energy, the externalized cost of labor, the externalized cost of the drivers, the, the externalized perception of people. The operating system beneath these operating systems, 
This is the one we're not talking about that much. The operating system beneath the operating system of the technologies that we're all using is corporate capitalism. That's what it's built on. If you build a tool on the platform of corporate capitalism, no matter what you want that tool to do, that tool is also an expression of the values of corporate capitalism, which are to externalize costs to other people. That's the history of it. You know, we, we have uh, our money system is an extractive money system. But the whole point of most of the developed technologies that we have as businesses was to extract value from people and places and convert that value into share price for a few investors. The only one who has a voice at the table in technology development is the venture capitalists. It used to be, even Adam Smith knew this, there were three factors of production. Right? It was land, labor, and capital. Think about that for a second. Land, labor, and capital. If capital is the only one that gets to talk, what happens to land? Climate crisis. What happens to labor? Disenfranchisement of 99% of the planet. Duh. And what did we do? What did we do? We took the corporate program and digitized it. You know, and then we're saying, oh, well, now let's get government on there too because, oh, it's so good. <laughs> you know, and it's really hard to start any kind of digital business another way. I mean, we could pick an example out of a hat. My favorite's always Twitter, because I knew Evan Williams, a great guy, well-meaning guy. And I saw him on the cover of the Wall Street Journal with the number 4.3 billion under his face the morning that they let you know, Twitter ring the opening bell on the stock exchange, and all those guys in suits applauded for them. And I thought, this guy's fucked. Right? Because he was. Because what does it mean if all those guys in suits are clapping for you? Are they all clapping because you've done something really disruptive? No, they're clapping because you've confirmed the primacy of corporate capital to the whole scheme of things. And then they will force you to what? To pivot into something that's going to give them 100x or 1,000x returns. So now that poor little Twitter, 140-character app that makes, what is it, $500 million a quarter, $2 billion a year, is considered an abject failure by Wall Street. Because it's circulating, it's generating value, it's doing this great thing, but it seems to have reached a peak. Oh no, it can't grow anymore. It only makes two billion. Imagine telling your mom, I only make two billion dollars a year, so we have to change. Right? So it's not allowed to be the thing that it that it could be. It's not allowed to just be a, a company because it's it's really it's a company that has to be sold in order to make money. I have to be able to sell my shares. It's a kind of a, a flip this house thing. And the problem with this arrangement, the problem with the entire house of digital cards being built on this faulty 12th century printing press era economic operating system is that it forces these companies to extract value from people and places rather than circulate it. You know, Amazon didn't go into books because it wanted to promote a sustainable book industry. But it went to books because it was the lowest hanging fruit in the entire, I mean, believe me, I'm a writer. It's the lowest hanging fruit, the most cobbled together little industry. So it was the easiest place to establish a monopoly from which it could then leverage that monopoly into other verticals. Don't think, I mean, I understand that in part technology is our hero, but don't think that people really see it that way. All of these disenfranchised persons, they are literally throwing rocks at the Google bus. You know, the title is not just 
poetry of that book. It's actually happening. They're throwing rocks at the Google bus. It's like, you know, the, the, the episode of Twilight Zone, To Serve Man. They see these things as the alien ships coming in. And what's happened? They're, they can't live in the towns anymore. That's how separate the digital economy has become from the real one. You know, and we want to build our platforms, our tools, our apps on that. Really, really tricky. Right? It's really tricky. The, actual, the tools that you use are the tools that you're using. You know, so the whole point of digital technology as it's been developed so far has been to sell companies rather than serving human needs or creating sustainable revenue. Sustainable revenue is a problem. We have a tax code that hates sustainable revenue, right? You get, if, you, if you make dividends on your stock, you're taxed high. If you make capital gains, you're taxed low. What does that say? We have a tax policy that is optimized for the extraction of value, not the circulation of value. That's the whole point. You know, the, the alternative economic model for a digital era would be a distributist one. That's what digital technology connotes. This is a distributed system. You know, the, the mantra I would use as you try to start companies, whether they're regular companies or companies for social good, is not, who are we going to get to invest in this company so that we can sell it? I mean, you can't do a social good company with that framework. Your framework has to be one of, how can we increase the velocity of money? Right? It's really, it's, it's more the idea of how do I earn the same dollar ten times rather than pull ten dollars out of the system. No, so what we want to do really is retrieve distributism. We want to retrieve the peer-to-peer -peer culture. And we, and we saw some great talks about this. We want to bring back cooperatives, this time as a platform co-op. What if the drivers of Uber owned 50% of the company? It would make the fact that they are doing the R&D for their robot replacements a whole lot less painful <laughs> right, because they're going to own it. You know, but without human intervention and a focus on solidarity, conscious in our mind, human solidarity, then we let the tools run our world for us. And what do we get in terms of democracy? Then we get Trump. Then we get the mobocracy, as we heard. Is that how we say it, mobocracy? Trump is the perfect digital candidate. Right? He is the perfect expression of the digital media environment, sans humanity. But it's as if he came from the, the, the trollish comments section of any blog. <laughs> it's perfect. And plus, in terms of a digital, if you really want to look at the transition from a television era to a digital era, Reagan was the television era. Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, because television was globalist. What does Trump do? Digital, discreet. Let's build a wall. Are they Mexicans or are they Americans? Is he this? Is he that? Is he Canadian? Is he that? It's about everything being discreet. So if you move into a digital media environment without understanding the biases of the technology, just let it rip, this is what you will get. And it's not going to be pretty. You know, our, our platforms, because they are optimized for extraction of value from people and places, they are optimized for attention, for sensationalism. You know, they're optimized to create filter bubbles and incitement. That's what we saw on these screens all day yesterday. And what is a filter bubble really? It goes back to corporate capitalism. A filter bubble is the externalization of those we don't want to see. If I have a good filter bubble, I don't have to see black people. I just get to see white porn or whatever it is we're supposed to want. 
And Google's really good at that, right? We understand that's what the search engine is for, is not to let you search the web. It's to let you narrow the web. It's to externalize the stuff. Don't nobody bring me no bad news, you know? That's too old a reference, I guess. It's the whiz. It's just... Now, the whole point of democracy, as I've learned from coming to the PDF, the whole point of democracy is not externalizing anything. That's the very purpose of government, is to, not, is to look at what's being externalized and, make a, and, and account for it. And, oh, no, those are being disenfranchised. Oh, no, that, this is the opposite of the corporate program. You know, but it's diametrically opposed to the values that are embedded in the tools and technologies and platforms that we're using. You know, think about the American Revolution. We're told it was against, what, the King of England or something? The American Revolution was not against the monarchy any more than it was against the British East India Trading Company, which had made it illegal for people. You, if you grew cotton, you weren't allowed to turn the cotton into fabric. That was against the law. You had to ship the cotton back to Britain, where they would make it into cotton and then sell it, or into fabric, and then sell it back to us. And it was that one company, British East India Trading Company. You had to do it through them. It was, it was the, the original platform monopoly. You know, so when we were protesting that, when we were fighting that, we were fighting for the right to a peer-to-peer -peer economy and peer-to-peer -peer activity. You know, so we get the net and we think, oh, is that now are we going to retrieve peer, the peer-to-peer anti-corporate ethos? And I was reminded of that when we put up, uh, I forgot who it was, put up John Barlow's Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace. And I love John Barlow, great person, means well. Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace calls out government. You governments of the world, beware. You stony, thorny, horrible, old things, whatever he said. Anti-government. Government, get off our internet. And I understand why he did that. This was Operation Sun Devil. Remember that back then? Operation Sun Devil, and they're putting all the sweet little hacker kids in jail and on Oprah and whatever. It was, you know, this dark period. Government was bad. But what happens when you get government off the platform? It's like getting rid of all the fungus, the bacteria grow. And what did we get? We got corporatism. <laughs> if you get rid of government, you get corporations. And so we lost the net. And I understand, and I'm sad about that. Right? We lost the net. And then I see some, some of us talking about, oh, look how we lost the net to corporate culture. Wasn't that awful? But you know, I understand you know, that, that we went from the open web to kind of closed Facebook. And we have really racially skewed search results and all that. But do we really want to fight about that? You know, when I see what's going on in, in Iran and Iran and wherever, now here we are in America. Okay, the web was supposed to make the world more open. And now we're going to fight to make the web more open. Something, there's an F backwardsness in that. To me, I understand we want to promote the openness of the web, but, but somehow I want to put humans first. I feel like there's a more uh, essential struggle. You know, and that struggle is, is obscured because of this disconnect, because of our inability to see the underlying operating system of corporate capitalism. That's what leads to depression and then dependency on big pharma. You know, that's what leads to climate change and disenfranchisement of labor. You know, the extractive net can't save us all and make you rich any more than Al Gore can save the environment with a hedge fund. <laughs> you know? 
In a digital media environment, I believe the means are the ends. It's another way of saying the medium is the message. The means are the ends. The way we do the thing is the way we do the thing. It is the thing itself. So what, we want to use a blockchain to engender trust? Blockchains don't engender trust. They perpetuate the distrust that was already programmed into us by institutions depending on our mistrust of each other. And it does it by spending energy. You know, do we want to use Google for our information access, really? Google, which will mistake the image ID of a black person for a gorilla? Did you know that? There are these two faces that Google said were gorillas? No, the object of the game is solidarity. And solidarity is not going to be found in an app or a website, particularly not one that was built to convert land and labor into share price. It is showbiz. These apps are showbiz. They are performative. Now, and once you get performative, I mean, I'm standing up here, you lose solidarity. I'm no longer one with you. I am now separate. Once you're performing, once you're tweeting, once you're updating, you're back in show business. You're back in Trump land. You know, it's the real world. Solidarity happens in the real world. Real people standing together for the sole purpose of enacting social justice. And the way we get there is how we get there. You know, so finally, I know my time is up. But my, my advice, my, my concern is, one, don't change yourself to accommodate the digital industrial environment. You know, the cognitive bias to the one negative thing might actually be a good thing in a world with filter bubbles where they're trying not to let us see anything that disagrees with us. It, I feel like I'd rather be a canary in the coal mine seeing that negative thing, trying to keep that, trying to keep that alive. Don't externalize the painful. Externalizing the painful is externalizing the, the oppressed. I'd rather be Tom Joad. You know, everyone, every suffering guy, everyone who's getting beaten, every, you know, let me see them all. Externalize nothing. Bring land and labor back to the table. You know, it's here in the real world that human beings have the home field advantage. This is the only place, not there. We can't have the home field advantage online. That's their turf. You know, this is where we get, you know, three-day work week, universal income. That results from, from programming technology for humans rather than adapting humans to the technology. There's a, a naivete plus an inevitability here that's a little dangerous and that we can easily flip. You know, the naivete is that these tools from Eisenhower's military industrial complex that he warned us about, you know, that we think that they are not embedded with values. You know, and what they are is the way the law used to protect chartered monopolies, now we have code that protects chartered monopolies. So if you don't know the code, you don't know that. And that the inevitability is this notion that, you know, they are building the world that we will all soon inhabit. I do not see an obligation to inhabit that world. You know, and maintaining enough autonomy to say, no, we don't have to use this. No, I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Facebook. My God, people are wondering how I'm surviving. You know, I, I've done it. I've done it. I mean, don't focus on the platforms or the technologies over the protocols because the protocols are embodied in us. Protocols are the way we enact things together as people. But mostly, democracy is not something we get or even build. It's something we do. It's something, it's, it's much more a verb, really, than a thing. You know, and finally, because I don't want to end. Um, there was a, uh, and I don't have an ending, and we shouldn't end. Um, there was an article in the New York Times this morning I saw on my way here that the period is going out of style. 
because of texting and all and the period means. On the one hand, it's a great example of the way the digital media environment changes the way we think and communicate and understand language and all that. And on the other hand, there's something really good about that. You know, that, that certainly, as far as PDF is concerned, this ending, this is not the period. You know, we know that, that getting to do the closing speech is not. This is the first speech of next year, right? This is not something that ends. It can't be. We never get there. The struggle continues. It's a permanent revolution. What PDF can be at its very best is the initiation of a process. Because unlike our technology, we humans are alive. Okay, thank you. That was me, Douglas Rushkoff, closing out the Personal Democracy Forum for 2016, hosted by Civic Hall. Thanks for joining Team Human for this special on-location episode. You can learn more about PDF, Civic Hall, and our guest, Marina Gorbis, by visiting teamhuman.fm. With each episode, we're building a list of resources, tools, and links to get involved, take action, and find the others. Special thanks to the Personal Democracy Forum for recording and sharing this talk. Today's interview was recorded on site at PDF and edited by Stephen Bartolomeu. Once again, thanks to our friends at Zago for helping us get this first season of Team Human off the ground. Thanks to Meetup for bringing people together in the real world. You can learn more about starting your own Meetup or joining an existing community by visiting meetup.com. Thanks to Fugazi and Discord Records for the music you hear as our intro and outro theme. The other bits of music you heard today are Team Human Originals. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. And again, come visit us at teamhuman.fm where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.